Hello and welcome to The Selection Show. I'm Ian Heath, the news editor of CityWire Selector. And joining me today, dialing in from New Jersey, we have Kathy Hepworth, who's the head of emerging debt at PGM Fixed Income. Thanks for joining us today, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. All right, hopefully today we're going to have a, quite a wide discussion on all things emerging debt. And um, first of all, we're going to kick off with this question, Kathy. I understand that at the moment you feel there's quite a lot of room to increase risk in the EM debt space right now. Uh, why do you think it, that might be the case? And uh, what are the key factors you're looking at this time or as we're coming into the, the closing months of the year? So uh, that's a great place to start because it's been a very interesting year. It's you know, been a volatile year. Uh, what we did, we had decreased risk in the portfolios in the first quarter of this year. And then by the time we got to May, after the market had sold off, and particularly in spreads, in emerging market credit spreads and sovereigns and in corporates, we thought that they had just sold off too much. Yields were very high. And what happened was the sentiment began to change, particularly because a lot of the risks that people were most focused on, and these were more global risks than EM-specific risks, but fears of a global banking crisis, fears of a shutdown of the U.S. government, they didn't materialize. And we began to see data in the U.S. improve. So based on valuations and our outlook for what the next few months might bring, we actually increased risk toward the end of May, June, and the beginning of July in spreads, as well as in in local bonds. Okay, that's interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about um, P. Jim's outlook for the rest of the year? You said like you know, things have turned out perhaps a little bit better than uh, perhaps a lot of people were predicting earlier in the year. Um, what, what's P. Jim's uh, take on things at the moment? What's its base case perhaps uh, outlook for the global economy? So I think the best way to answer this is to talk about what we're thinking about U.S. growth, about Euro area growth, China growth, and then EM growth broadly. So we think that U.S. growth is in better shape than we had anticipated beginning in the in the year. Inflation is elevated, but it's coming down. It's descending. Um, growth is resilient. And it's kind of more akin to what we like to call a soft landing or even a weakflation scenario. So weak is, growth is kind of weak. Inflation is still elevated, but it doesn't mean that we can't have some level of growth. Um, the growth backdrop in the euro area kind of remains well below trend, and that is going to continue to be weak. China will likely grow with about a 5% handle, and we would characterize that as a moderate downside, right? Not a meltdown. There's a lot of chatter out there in the market about just how bad things are in China. And, And I'm not trying to downplay the risks in China, but I think everyone needs to take a step back and consider that even if China grows with a 5% handle, it's still going to have a substantial contribution to overall global growth. Um, There are clearly headwinds in China. They have to do with demographics, deleveraging, and de-risking. And we see how the problems in the property sector are weighing on confidence and therefore overall growth. And while we don't think there's going to be a policy bazooka coming from policymakers in China, some measures have been taken on the monetary policy front, as well as measures to loosen some of the the rules um, that are binding the property sector now. What we think will happen over time is there will be measures to really help stimulate fiscal policy, um, and in particular at the local government level. 
Um, we think that put all of this together, more broadly growth in EM is going to be okay. Um, but what I think is going to matter over time, say over the next three to five years, is that growth differential between EM and DM is going to work in EM's favor once again. Okay, interesting. Um, okay, before I move into our next question, you mentioned the term weakflation in, in regard to the U.S. economy. I was wondering if you could just clarify uh, that exactly. What do, you, what do you mean by that term? So um, from the perspective of growth, growth is going to be weaker, kind of below trend. You know, not as high, say, as it had been during the period of the Great Moderation. Uh, and inflation is going to be higher than target, um, which means, which doesn't necessarily mean that the Fed is going to have to continue to hike rates. In fact, our base case is they're likely done hiking rates. But it doesn't mean, but because inflation is going to be elevated, perhaps doesn't mean that we're going to be imminently seeing rate cuts either. So we're in a period where it's good enough growth for the U.S. and for the global economy. That brings me nicely on to my next question, actually. I wanted to ask you about the, the rate height cycle. And most commentators, and including yourself by the sounds of things, we feel that we're getting to the end of that rate height cycle in the U.S., uh, perhaps in other sort of important developed economies. How do you see that impacting uh, emerging markets and you know, factors such as currency risk? And, you know, would you be, I know that you run like several funds, you know, you run local currency and hard currency, you know, where are you going to be more interested? Any um, measures that stop the tightening in global liquidity conditions is good for EM, right? EM in large part um, is very sensitive to global risk sentiment. Um, and if that stabilizes, that's a good thing for EM, particularly where we are from a valuation perspective. EM central banks have already embarked upon the rate cutting cycle. We've seen a few already so far. Uh, Brazil, Chile, Poland, um, and a few more are likely to cut rates between now and the end of the year. And, and why is that? Well, because they had to hike rates significantly more than DM countries because inflation was higher. Emerging market countries are much more sensitive to what we were seeing from energy inflation, from food inflation, et cetera. So their real rates were significantly higher and we've begun to see signs of inflation turning over. So the US will stop hiking when we see that inflation has in fact turned over and, and we are seeing that similarly in emerging market countries. So I think that the cutting cycle in a lot of these countries um, is going to be meaningful. Um, what does that mean in terms of opportunities, though, say for local bonds or for EMFX? Um, uh, I think what matters when you're talking about local bond investing is a lot of those cuts are priced in already. So you have to be very careful where you invest along the curve in some of these emerging market countries. When it comes to EMFX, it's really interesting because while normally one would think, okay, as these emerging market countries cut rates, um, maybe that means that emerging market currencies are going to be vulnerable. And what was interesting is for a good part of this year, I think emerging market currencies did a lot better than the market would have um, anticipated. So we don't see a big sell-off in EMFX sort of writ large because carry still matters, right? We're in a world broadly where, in particular in emerging markets, like yields are high, 
spreads in some credit segments are elevated. Local bond yields as well are high um, and some of the, the carry, the high carry currencies that still um, persists. But having said all of that, what the currency that we think is going to dominate is going to be the US dollar. So in terms of how we're structured in our portfolios where we take EMFX risk is we're overweight the dollar and broadly underweight EMFX and in particular overweight the US dollar versus um, Asia FX, in large part because of um, what's, because those are just lower yielding currencies there. We think rates are going to remain at these relatively high levels um, and growth in the U.S. is still going to be solid. So that's one of the reasons why we think the dollar will continue to be relatively strong and will perform well relative not only to EM currencies, but to DM currencies. Um, and over the medium term, as I mentioned earlier, EM growth improves relative to DM growth and flows recover. Um, I think EMFX um, can do well. Okay, sure. Okay, well, we covered currency off nicely there. Let's talk about some other factors in emerging markets, inflation and interest rate risks. Um, do, do you feel we're kind of over the worst of that now, or is this something that you're still factoring in? If, if so, how are you allocating to account for that? So, always mindful that there could be risks on the horizon, but in large part, we are overweight duration in local emerging market bonds. Um, so we do see persistent downtrends in inflation in the broad swath of emerging market countries. Um, and as I mentioned, those central banks were the first to hike because they had to hike. Uh, I think there are clear signs that uh, that. Um, that all the different types of inflation that matter for these countries um, are beginning to show signs of disinflation. And because emerging market countries are more sensitive to what happens in China, and there are clear signs of disinflation in China, I think that's another thing that makes us feel more comfortable that inflation will continue on the, the downward trend in, in a lot of these countries. I think another thing that's important to consider is policymakers in a lot of the emerging market world were really balancing that trade-off between inflation and growth. And now at least there's the, you know, the proof statements that inflation has turned. And it's imperative that obviously, you know, growth be restored in a lot of these countries, in particular, given some of the, the debt levels that materialize, the higher debt levels that materialize post the COVID shock, you know, post the supply shock and post, uh, post the Russia invasion of, of Ukraine. So I think it's managing that balance that's important um, as well. Will there, could there be periods where food or energy prices spike because of geopolitical developments? Sure. Um, but I think given what we've seen uh, most recently, it's not likely to have the same impact that it had over the past few years. Okay, sure. Okay, look, maybe just kind of one uh, more question in that area. I want to talk just a little bit about commodity prices. Um, they're always considered an important factor when you're talking about emerging market and um, so could you tell me, wh wh where do you feel we are actually in, in the commodity cycles at, at the moment? How is that affecting emerging market debt? I think 
were relatively balanced when we talk about commodities broadly for, for emerging markets, notwithstanding the recent spike we've seen in oil prices, given the cuts announced by some of the, the major oil producers. Now, it's important to remember that EM is a mix of different countries, right? It includes a lot of countries that import commodities, be it agricultural commodities, uh, you know, raw materials or energy, and those that export commodities as well. Um, and even within commodity prices, right, there are trends that are impacting metals, trends that are impacting agricultural prices, such as the climate, um, and then obviously what we see happening with um, energy prices broadly. And we think that the current prices are really neither too high nor too low, right? So it's that balance so that those countries that depend on commodity imports and the different types of commodity imports and those that export it aren't going to be really negatively impacted um, from the balance of payments perspective. You know, going forward, I think that with the focus on energy transition and a lot of emerging market countries have the raw materials that will be needed for uh, a lot of the, the different technologies that are likely to emerge. This is going to be an important theme for emerging market countries you know, from a policy perspective as well. Um, and a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America in particular, I think will be a focus of the rest of the world, given the fact that they have these commodities. So my, and my point here is that you know, commodity sensitivity matters and it's not going to go away, but maybe this time it will be used in a way that um, really is advantageous for a lot of the different emerging market countries. Um, okay, and we, and sorry. sorry, we just have this uh, emerging mega trend, uh, which you're talking about here with the yeah, materials yes. needed for green energy. Okay. Yep. Um, okay, well, let's talk a, a little bit more about um, country specific. Um, one of the kind of well, one of the key risks that's always identified with emerging markets is um, political risk or economic risk. Um, is there any countries at the moment uh, which um, you think it's a good idea to avoid? I mean, I mean there's, there's certain countries which are well documented to have uh, political and economic pro problems at the moment. Uh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Argentina spring to mind. I just wonder what your thoughts are in this area. Sure. Uh, so one of the takeaways from the past few years is the dispersion in performance among the different emerging market countries. Um, why am I going there, right? Um, because I think when you answer that question, you have to, part of the decision is, well, what's priced in? So clearly, countries that you reference have a decent amount of you know, financial risk as well as um, political risk. So let's make each of them um, individually. So you get a sense of you know, how investors really balance that you know, value versus fundamental part of the uh, equation. So, for example, Sri Lanka, right? Sri Lanka is already in default and it's sort of trading in the mid to high 40s. And I think it's reasonable to assume when one does a debt sustainability analysis on a country like Sri Lanka and you think about the different creditor groups who are going to be involved in the restructuring that where it's currently trading, it's relatively fair from a recovery value perspective. Another country in default, Ghana, uh, it trades a bit lower than where Sri Lanka trades, but we think where it's trading in the low 40s also is a fair 
recovery value. Do we want to have overweights in these countries? Not necessarily, but we think where it's trading, notwithstanding the fact that both of those countries are in default, makes it uh, attractive enough to want to have some investment there. Pakistan. Pakistan is interesting because clearly it's a country with a significant amount of political risk and has historically been the case. They currently have a caretaker government. They are not in default. Um, But what matters for Pakistan and where it's trading right now is, number one, that caretaker government, the interim government, is doing what the IMF wants them to do so that they can continue to receive funding from the IMF. Pakistan receives a good amount of funding from bilateral countries, in particular, some of the Gulf countries. And they really don't have a lot of external debt that, if they were to default, would need to get restructured with a large haircut. So we view Pakistan as actually having good value where it's currently trading. And our base case is it's not going to um, default. The other country that you talked about uh, is, is Argentina. And I think that that one is very interesting because there are a lot of market participants that we think are getting overexcited about the prospects of um, of a Millet victory. And this is the candidate who talked about dollarization and you know, making a lot of significant changes in the country, which clearly are necessary um, and are deemed to be market friendly. But our base case is really, regardless of who wins in Argentina, they're going to have to restructure because they simply have too much debt. They can't grow. Um, Significant reforms need to be undertaken. And they owe the IMF a lot of money. So they're going to have to take a haircut. And they didn't really take a significant enough haircut with the 2020 restructuring. So that's you know, a country where there's political risk because of the outlook for the election, but the fundamentals themselves make us more cautious. Now, clearly, one might argue, well, you know, Argentina's already trading at very low dollar prices, you know, closer to the 30s um, and the 20s. So maybe that reflects what a recovery value might be. But I think there's two-way risk there. So it doesn't seem to me as a uh, screaming an opportunity, as some in the market might um, suggest. I mean, am I correct in thinking they've not been meeting IMF stipulations as well recently? I think the IMF has been, let's just call them very accommodating. (laughs) (laughs) They've been creative in how they meet the the stipulations. Okay, (laughs) some diplomatic language there. Okay, let's let's turn it the the other way around. Um, uh, Which countries might be... um, more interesting for for you at the moment, and um, wait, com- compared to Argentina, um, where you might have these perceived adversities, which uh, could create um, opportunities or a political premium, um, you might call it. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the themes we talked about is just the dis- dispersion in, in valuations, and let me put a little flesh on that. Um, so, when I what am I talking about when I talk about that? Well. The spread on the overall index, and here I'm going to refer to the, the JP Morgan MV Global Diversified. It's, I don't know, let's call it 420, right? But that's comprised of investment grade and below investment grade. So the investment grade spreads are clearly at tight levels. Um, but they could remain so um, because one of the reasons why those countries 
that are investment grade, triple B or single A or double A are trading theirs because they fundamentally, they don't have, they don't, they're very well insulated. Um, they don't have to come to market. Um, and they're from a balance of payments perspective, from a fiscal perspective, they're, they're resilient. Um, the below investment grade universe is also really interesting because you have double Bs, you have single Bs, and then you have triple Cs in distressed. And where there's a lot of value is in some of the triple Cs in distressed and some of the single Bs. Now, we, we like double Bs, so we're clearly positioned in double B sovereigns as well as um, some of the double B quasi sovereigns and corporates, but specific to your question. So where in some of the lower rated countries is there good value? Well, some of the sub-Saharan African countries in particular that are performing. And here I'm talking about Angola, Ivory Coast, um, Zambia, which is another defaulted country, which is probably closer to getting restructured than some of the other ones we talked about earlier. Um, maybe even in Latin America, you know, Ecuador. And why are these countries attractive? Well, in some instances, it's because they've done their homework. You know, they, they have tried to either diversify their economy or repair their fiscal balances, reduce the overall level of government debt that they have relative to, to G GDP. And for the most part, they have decent relationships with the official sector. You know, in the case of Ecuador, they're you're going through an election. Meanwhile, it's not something that I think is um, overly attractive. I think if the a better scenario unfolds in terms of you know the election outcome and the second round of the election outcome, that actually could be you know quite positive for Ecuador over the next few years. Um, even a country like Ukraine over the medium term can have some upside. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty on how that situation will play out, but it's a country where there's, let's call a lot of goodwill on the perspective of some bilaterals, the official sector, um, and it's going to need a lot of money. So that debt restructuring might be done in such a way, again, over the next few years, that makes it attractive for um, investor. I think there's another point that probably doesn't get emphasized enough when we talk about some of these weaker countries or countries that have defaulted, and it's that in general, the official sector, or let's call it the West, um, is really keen to make sure that they stay engaged with emerging markets. Maybe they took their eye off the ball over the past 20 years, right? China didn't. You know, China made a lot of inroads into the broad, you know, emerging market countries. And I think the multilaterals, and clearly the U.S., wants to make sure that there's a floor on valuations or how bad things get. Geopolitics is, you know, clearly changing. Um, and we need to have, countries need to have a format for restructurings. We, we've seen that, the common framework and other variations, which will likely be put forth over the next few years because we want all creditor parties, right? Countries don't go away. They continue to be going concerns. So you want private capital, right? You want the official sector. You want bilateral lenders to continue to want to engage with these countries and, and help them grow. Um, and I, I think that the added geopolitical dynamic, U.S. relations with China, um, et cetera, 
that is is shifting, and that's an important imperative that we have to keep in mind. Okay, interesting. So, so what you're saying is the West might be a bit more accommodating on that front when it comes to yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, could we just just a few more things? Um, could we just talk about where you are on perhaps corporate uh, versus uh, government debt? So what I like about that question is it's going to give me the opportunity to talk about the focus on bottom-up fundamentals, right? Emerging markets is interesting because there are so many different ways to express a view. We talked a little bit about some of sovereigns, credit. We talked about local rates. We talked about FX. But you can also invest in emerging market corporates. Um, You can invest in in quasi-sovereigns. And from a bottom-up perspective, rather than say, well, I like corporates rather than government bonds, um, we like to focus on what we call a credit barbell. And what that means is, depending on valuation, where things are trading, where we find value is in some investment-grade sovereigns, um, CEE countries, some GCC countries, some Latin American countries, some quasi-sovereigns that are investment grade. Sweet spot is double B, double B corporates. What's interesting about corporates relative to, say, sovereign slash government issuers now is there's there's more attractive spread from a relative perspective. So corporates for a given rating, um, there's there's better credit quality in general, um, and there's a better spread relative to how tight they've been historically, and there's a good spread, say, relative to U.S. Um, high yield in particular for for the double B corporates. We tend to not like to invest in single B corporates um, or below. So we like corporates, again, but that credit barbell, higher quality there. We like a mix of sovereigns, some of the higher quality ones and some of the lower quality ones that we have been discussing. Um, And then in local bonds, right? you might ask, well, would you like hard currency better are a local better. And again, it's really, we like both of them. Um, within an individual country, maybe we like to have a mix of, let's use Mexico um, as an example. Maybe rather than owning the sovereign there, we want to own a mix of quasi-sovereign and corporates. Short maturity, don't have to go out the curve these days. Really nice spread, really nice yield. Maybe there's not a ton of opportunity in local rates there. Uh, because inflation is still elevated. Maybe the currency has some elements that are that are attractive. Mex peso has done um, relatively well, and we think rates will be a little bit higher there. Maybe it's a little bit more um, correlated to the U.S. dollar than some of the, the other emerging market countries. So it's not a matter of saying up front, well, oh, I, I just want to own corporates or I just want to own FX or local bonds. It really depends on the bottom-up analysis from a fundamental perspective. Absolutely. Okay, um, just one last question. Um, how is the um, technical situation looking in emerging markets right now? I think that's one of the stronger um, reasons to want to allocate to emerging market debt right now. I think Again, the shocks that have occurred over the past few years have taken a lot of investors, let's call them the, you know, the tourists, investors out of the asset class. Um, we had outflows last year, we meaning the asset class broadly. 
um, so far this year as well, even though this year I think returns have been okay across all of the different EM sectors and probably better than the market had anticipated, yet we still see outflows. So I don't think investors are overextended. I don't think the end investors are overallocated to EM. And then when we really drill down and look at the outlook for supply for the different sovereigns or the different corporates or quasi-sovereigns, there's really, and, and this is definitely the case for EM corporate supply, it's you know negative net financing, meaning that there's more debt maturing than is going to be issued. And it's very well balanced in for EM sovereign. So while of late, you're seeing a ton of supply hit, say, the U.S. IG market. We're beginning to see it in U.S. high yield. I'm not saying we don't have some supply um, in EM, but I think it's going to be much better absorbed because we haven't had a ton of it because investors are already defensively positioned. Okay, sure. Okay, we can finish there. Uh, Kathy Hepworth. It's been great speaking to you. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you.